Welcome to Dreaming in Color, a space for social change leaders of color to reflect on how their life experiences, personal and professional, have prepared them to lead and drive the impact we all seek. I'm your host, Darren Isom. This is Dreaming in Color. Nate Wong is a self-described social entrepreneur who creates lasting social change by helping others defy the status quo. Most recently, he served as the Chief Strategy and Social Innovation Officer at the Beak Center for Social Impact and Innovation at Georgetown University, having previously served as its Managing Director and Interim Executive Director. Before that, he was a Deputy Director for the North American branch of the Center for Public Impact, working with governments and partners around the world in addressing economic mobility, government legitimacy, and city innovation. He helped launch Deloitte's social impact practice and has engaged with over 50 social entrepreneurs through a DC-based social enterprise incubator called Halcyon. Nate is an all-around thought leader, and we are excited to welcome him to the show. Also very excited to share that since recording the episode, Nate has joined me here at the Bridgeband Group as a partner in the Boston office. Nate, it's wonderful to chat with you today. Thanks for making time. As you know, I'd like to kick things off with you invoking the conversation. So hopefully you have something to read for us. I do. So I'd love to read one of my favorite poems. It's actually by the 13th century Sufi mystic Rumi called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has, has been sent as a guide from beyond. That's beautiful. Meet them at the door laughing. If that's not life advice, I don't know what is. So thank you for that one. That's a great one. And real excited to chat with you today. And I want to kick it off. Uh, I could kick it off in so many different ways. You have so many different things to talk about. But I love giving people just a space to talk about how in many ways, at least for myself, like my early experiences, my childhood shaped so much of my worldview in a way that I appreciate more and more as I get older. Uh, and so I would love to give you the space maybe to talk about how your childhood, your growing up, shape your worldview in ways that you're discovering still. Definitely. I love the notion of discovering still because I, I feel like there's things that I reflect back on early on that I, I really don't fully understand until now. But I think food, honestly, has been such a big memory for me. Um, I actually grew up with a skin condition called eczema and it was really, really bad. So I would basically have to have food, like I would have to be really careful about all the intake of food that I consumed. So my mom was a saint and would cook, you know, every single meal. And I remember just so vividly sitting on the kitchen counter, watching my mom cook, being part of the experience. But I, I think what was so poignant about that is just what comes about when you mix food and family and community and the intention behind it. So just every aspect and choice of, you know, ingredient to just the act of cooking itself and smelling the foods before you actually consume it and taste it. And I, I 
think that that's so true kind of experiences now where we we'd actually don't think about food as like a slow experience if you will we don't really savor it we don't anticipate it it's just sometimes like just to consume for sustenance versus the enjoyment of it and so i i vividly you know, I'm connected to my cultural heritage um, in addition and the the lineage, if you will, of my family that has had many different um, circuitous routes, but through food. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, I'm from New Orleans, so you know anything food related gets me excited. And I, hilariously, though, what I thought about was many years ago living in, in New York and going on a date with a guy, one and only date, in which he uh, at some point, I asked him about his favorite foods, and he said, "Well, I only eat for calories." And I was like, "Yeah, this is not going to work out. This is <laughs> this is not. You have a totally different worldview. This is not going to work out at all." I do want to go back to though this concept of just like the cooking and the eating, and because I think it speaks to so many things in life. And one of the things that have been just a true joy for me during these COVID decades—I don't know what we're doing now—is I love cooking, but more importantly, I love just the slow process of slow cooking. And I, I love you know, there's so few things in life you can do and complete in three, four hours, <laughs> right? But I think that, you know, going back to the point that you made, so much of, we use this term a lot in consulting, so hopefully it won't trigger you at all, but so much of the, the product is the process, right? And the enjoyment that I get out of the meal, sometimes it all happens before the meal is even served, particularly as the cook, right? So I would love maybe just for you to reflect on that process and just your family time and, and, and sitting there. I definitely have some fond mem- memories sitting at a table waiting for my grandmother to finish cooking. But what were the lessons that you learned in that space and in that time? Yeah, I, I think they've somewhat evolved. I I don't think I appreciated as a kid the intentionality of picking out the ingredients. And so now, you know, especially in the pandemic and kind of being intentional of what inspires me. So is it a grocery store? Is it a food memory? There's so much packed into just harking back to, you know, memories as a kid. And so I, I think the first aspect is ins- like what inspires us. Many times I'm not even sure if I fully understand or know. Is it external? Is it internal? Like what is kind of the invitation there? So just sitting with that is, I think, part of the process. And then I, I think it's the, you know, what some would call like mise en place, like actually putting all the ingredients out, having a a methodology, like a, I think of it almost like a, as an orchestra, right? Like you're you're gathering all of the different parts, and then the beauty in my mind comes when you start to combine the different ingredients. I'm a cook. I am not a baker, mm-hmm. so I do not care about the, <laughs> the chemistry of it. I like to ad lib a lot, which you know, to your point usually means I'm tasting as I go. So I'm probably not the most hungry after. One hundred percent. I'm so full. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've tasted that sauce a thousand times. No, enjoy it, please. Hundred percent. And then I'd, I actually love the concept of plating and then the community afterwards. And so even though I may cook just for two, I almost always have the mentality as if I'm cooking for like six people. So there's usually lots of leftover, but the the plating, I think it is kind of an art form in itself. Like how do you actually, and I think this there's a parallel to life of like, 
the translation of how you want someone to consume it and the perception before they even take the first bite. Like, is it pleasant to look at? Is it something that's inviting? Is it intriguing? You know, I love, and and maybe I I get annoyed when people don't comment on my food. (laughs) And I definitely was on the receiving end for my mom and and family for that. But yeah, you want to hear like, that was that was great. All of the the slow process that it took was worth something. It's a labor of love. So I mean, it's a love language, 100%. right? So you want that to be appreciated. Yeah, I I have two places I want to go with that. First and foremost, I think that um, one of the things that inspires me from a cooking perspective, and particularly this was at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there was a there's an absolutely wonderful quote or a wonderful video of a real life journalist interviewing Aretha Franklin. And asking her what things does she worry about, her worries. And uh, and she looks over just very straightforwardly and it's like, mm, good question, my worries. Just every day, just what to cook for dinner, right? <laughs> this is a total 100% Aretha Franklin move, right? That's all that she's worried about. But there is something to be said about, for me, I felt like, you know, I would sit in the morning and be like, you know, how are the elders how the elders informing my dinner's preparation. And and it's because in many ways, cooking was, you were honoring the elders, right? From a dish perspective, from a perspective of, you know, what things they appreciated, what things you love, what things you want to honor from a memory perspective. And I want to take that sense of cooking, you know, as a way of honoring uh, those uh, that you do. And and then pick up on the piece that you said around this idea of how you show up and the the placing and, and being important as well. And I would love to get a sense of, as you think about your career, kind of how you're showing up in, in your career and have shown up. How is that in some ways a way of your honoring both your parents and your heritage and, and your background? Well, I think what's interesting is that my background, it, it may be important to to chat briefly about, because I, I think it does inform how I show up. Briefly my... at length, whatever you like. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Chinese ethnically, but my dad grew up in Honolulu, um, Hawaii. His grandparents emigrated to Hawaii to pick pineapples. And then my mom grew up in Fiji. Hmm. So British, British colony. And what's interesting about kind of some of the the different and similar island cultures is that there's a real emphasis on not melding everything together. Like there's honoring the different parts. And so it's a difference between a melting pot versus actually being able to see every ingredient and honoring them in concert with others, not trying to blend them necessarily. So I add that because it it's an interesting through line to both honor the part and then understand what is this, how did these parts add up? And I honestly have been in constant tension <laughs> with those two aspects. And, you know, early on, a lot of how I showed up was from a more assimilation point of view as an immigrant who, you know, didn't even fit the the classical stereotype, if you will, as Chinese. I had so many other influences. So I felt like I had to conform to a certain view of, you know, leadership. And then also feeling like I had to also translate cultural heritage and you know, different pieces of my story for my parents. So honoring a lot of Chinese values of respect and honor, along with more island values of like hospitality and and freeness and kind of less order, if you will. And so to be honest, a lot of it has been a journey in 
understanding how to show up and understanding how, like, frankly, being burned, if you will, to use the kitchen analogy, when, you know, people wouldn't know how to put me into a box. And so I started to put and create those boxes so that people could easily identify myself. Like the classic question that, you know, many people like me get are, you know, where are you from? And what exactly does that mean? I'm from DC. I grew up in DC. But really what they're asking is like, what makes your face look that way? (laughs) Like, is it what cultural aspect? And so depending on, you know, how much I want to honor and like really pay tribute to that heritage, I will walk people through that. Or I may just say, look, I'm Chinese, which is equally true, but it, it lacks some of the, the dimension to it. Well, it lacks, it lacks the fuller story, right? And there is a fuller story and a fuller narrative. And I think that, you know, that where you're from is literally a person's attempt to box you. They're trying to get a sense of what narrative they can attribute to you. And as you made perfectly clear, when you talk about your story, it's been about creating that narrative that you live into that's your own. And I would love to just have you share a little bit as you think about creating that narrative, which is still being written to some degree. uh, What are the things that you feel are most important for you to call out um, in shaping that narrative? And then what are the things that hate to throw out Kenji Yoshino uncovering, right? But there are also other things that you talk less about because they're less important to you as you think about that narrative and who you are. Yeah, I, for me, I'm actually acutely aware of who am I gifting my narrative to? Because I think it's really important, depending on who the audience is, it's a gift for them to know different parts of me. And it's not that I'm hiding or covering certain parts. Some of that may be true depending on the audience, but it's also like, what is the point of connection for us? And what is the point of asset or value? So for me, some of that, you know, moving in between many different worlds, I feel like I'm able to hold space spaciously, (laughs) if that, if that makes sense. So to honor a lot of different you know, values, because I, I think I've had to, to do that with my own family, but also in how I've navigated and honored myself. So oftentimes in, you know, racial, racial equity spaces, I feel like I can play a translator role and very much, you know, live into that as something that is part of who I am. I think that for me, I'm also more of a provocateur you know, it's taken me in a while, but I have learned to embrace being kind of the different one, the odd one out. And, uh, you know, at first it was, there was a lot of angst around that type of role, also navigating my sexuality, all of these other pieces. And now that's something that I actually take a lot of pride in. And I, I don't mind being different. I don't mind owning, being provocative when it's used for a purpose. I want to honor the fact that this idea of your narrative, your story being a gift is one that I will hold on to. That's beautiful. And how do you think about gifting that to others in conversation or just in relationships? And I do want to build on that point just a little bit because I think that this also speaks to this being able to honor your difference as a gift also in many ways makes you honor others, other people's differences as their gifts as well. And I think very often you, you talked about this role as a translator. Um, being a really good translator actually means you have to be a really good listener to listen quite generously and graciously and lovingly to what the person is saying uh, and actually appreciate that difference 
in order to translate it properly. And I would love to just hear you talk a little bit more about this kind of this role as a translator and how that's shown up in your life professionally and otherwise. And what does that look like to do it well? Yeah, I think, you know, growing up, some of it was literally translating culturally between my my parents. My grandparents actually, you know, died before I was born or, or when I was at a early age. So I didn't necessarily have the opportunity to fully engage with them. But understanding the different cultural elements that underpinned how my parents grew up in the world. And I, I would say very much in a survivalist mentality to the world that I was living in, which was actually very different. So being able to play that translator role, I think was one. I also grew up uh, right outside of DC. And so very much, you know, had a lot of different perspectives and form my own. So my best friend is Nigerian and another really good friend was from Iran. I mean, just, I had a lot of other cultural perspectives that that came into play that it always made me curious. I, I think part of that translator spaciousness role is for me, like a curiosity and then not jumping to assumptions because there were so many assumptions that were broken around me, I couldn't actually easily put people into boxes. So I think that that like early on has informed things. From a career standpoint, I've also seen it very much happen across different sectors where the private sector has a completely different language and culture, if you will, in operating than the public sector or social sector. And so, you know, having an early career in management consulting and almost being groomed into a very particular worldview of how to operate, the importance of order, efficiency, productivity, showing up, you know, almost like your external side mattering a lot more, if not the only thing that mattered, than the internal. And then also being in worlds where, especially at home and other places where like, they didn't know anything about, like my, my parents thought I did accounting mm -hmm. <laughs> for a decade because I worked at Deloitte, even though I was doing <laughs> consulting. So yeah, I think there was is like- a, a, is a tough sell. Consulting is a tough sell to parents. Yes, very much so. So I, I think bridging just language and cultural elements. And for me, the translation really comes with questions. What's the question that kind of unearths either a point of connection or unearths an assumption that we didn't fully call out that then creates more dialogue? And so for me, it's always going to deeper layers. That's wonderful. And I, I want to build on that point as well. And I'll throw out a life example for me. And I joke all the time growing up in New Orleans, uh, I may have the unique experience very often when you speak with people of color, they can share the first time that they realized that they were whatever grouping that they were. And for me, I grew up in a black home, a black city. And I remember, you know, my, my stories, I remember the first time that I realized that everybody wasn't black. Like that was a, <laughs> that was a, wait, there are people that aren't black, right? And, and I joke all the time that, you know, you live in New Orleans, so you, you saw white people on TV, but like, there were a lot of things on TV that didn't exist in reality. Like Santa was white on TV. There was like tuna, people were eating tuna casserole. Like, what was that, right? So I thought white people were one of those things as well. And I do think that, you know, going back to your point of being curious, being able to question, 
There is also an underlying, this also goes back to your provocateur, there's an underlying questioning of the world order as not necessarily being the right one, right? There's a general (laughs) hopeful cynicism, right? That makes you, you see things as they are, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how they have to be, right? And so I would love to hear more about, you know, as you think about, you talk about those assumptions that you call out to test your question, what have been some assumptions that we operate under that you have found completely invalid and useless (laughs) or things where you're constantly being like, we really think that's the truth. Yeah, obviously not. Let's talk about that a little bit more. So unpacking some of the the assumptions that you like to disrupt uh, or do you find that completely invalid and unhelpful? Oh my gosh. Uh, Do we only have so many? I know, right? I know. Nate, pick a few. (laughs) Um, America's a whole mess of bad assumptions. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know what? What's interesting, if I can take one step back, I have learned over time to actually trust what my body is telling me. And so I think, especially in a more polarized world that we live in now, it's very easy to, you know, put things in polarities, right? Like, is it right or wrong or black or white or, you know, I think that's never sat well with me. And so even like in, in simple ways, I feel like I've had to learn to trust my body of like, if I'm feeling uncomfortable, that actually is okay. Like it's, it's not a, okay, just move past that emotion to get to an answer. And so I, it's almost an invitation for, for others to, hold the tension. Like there's something beautiful about holding those tensions because I think it allows us to actually confront assumptions without dismantling all of our sense of what's right or wrong. So a few ones that come to mind are market forces, right? Like the market will just tell us what to do or will like guide us we're told about a lot of these different outside forces around us. Folks can't see my eyes opening wide and my, my eyebrows raising. Yes, market <laughs> forces. So those market forces, it's like the other God. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I, I think those over time, I think have been real assumptions that um, I think we all have to confront, even the social sector. We can't talk about philanthropy without talking about the systems of capitalism. We can't talk about capitalism without talking about redlining and, you know, policy. And so it, it's interesting to see the siloing based on people's assumptions of market forces will will work to correct XYZ when really systems were designed for a reason. They're working exactly the way they were designed. And if we want a different outcome, we're either delusional to not correct it, or we actually need to invest in that. So I think honestly, as an Asian, I've had to really confront the myth of the model minority. This assumption that we we'll get there because our work will show or this like sense of meritocracy. And I I think that meritocracy only makes sense when you're benefiting from the system. When you're not, it's not a meritocracy. And I think most of us can agree and can point to numerous examples where it's not a meritocracy. Or when the term meritocracy is used as a blatant facade for white supremacy. 100%. 100%. And so... I think 
you know, those are two. And then maybe the third, which we can unpack more, is that there's a singular view of leadership. I do a lot of leadership coaching. And in some ways, it's it's my own external therapy, too, um, and seeing other people who I would call, you know, the first, the few, the only, but many of them are, are BIPOC uh, leaders. And so much of our upbringing and models of leadership are conforming to a very white-centered view of what leadership looks like, that you have to be, you know, super charismatic, that you have to, you know, lead in a more aggressive manner, especially for for men, that it is a zero-sum game, that it it's kind of like a checklist of, you know, how aggressive you can be in certain areas. And it just, it's not true. There's many different forms of leadership. And especially if we look at other non-US-centered versions of leadership, it shows up in very different ways and even within the US context. So those are ones that I feel like I work pretty hard to confront and that's probably when my provocateur side (laughs) comes up uh, the most. Can you talk a little bit more? I I wanted to do a so perfect segue, thank you, to your, your work in coaching other leaders. And I would love to hear more about express this idea of it being something that, you know, offers some sense of the importance of healing, the importance of inner work from a success perspective, from a sense of honoring who you are and your stories and all that you bring to the table. I would love to hear more about that coaching work from a healing perspective, but I would also love to hear more about as you, you know, do this work with others and learn from others, what are the assets that they're bringing to the table that they often hide or are often underappreciated and carrying out the work and leading? Yeah, I think what the sad reality is, especially for BIPOC leaders, is that we have, I mean, I think all leaders, but especially BIPOC leaders, have these inner voices and saboteurs that have believed these delusions. And it it's not surprising, you know, um, that the the system of white supremacy is like the air that we breathe. So how could you not even, you know, think about that? Um, and so things like people have to work two or three times, five times harder than their white counterparts, which I think is actually some of the reality, but we don't name why. And so it's it's actually really interesting. So much of it is unlearning. And I think that's where healing can come when you stop trying to conform and just own, this is my authentic self and this is how I want to show up. This is the game that I thought I needed to learn how to play, but this is the game that I actually want to play. And I I walked through this with a, a leader this past week and she was talking a lot about essentially trying to do some strategery. It was like a chess game with a white colleague who she felt was like really, you know, basically stopping her from doing a lot of the intentional inclusion work that was part of her job. And, you know, we paused and I asked her to identify like, what game is he playing? And what game are you playing? And essentially it was like, actually, I don't need to stoop to his level to like do this strategy. And that is a lot of extra headspace for me to think about counter moves and other moves, especially for 
people of color, and I, I don't want to make like huge generalizations, but I, I think it's, there's more of a collective mentality for many of us, either culturally or, you know, because of legacy of persecution, you do find kindred, you know, you have to survive in community. So there is a different mentality than a, a pure like zero-sum game. And so if you confront almost the system that you're actually operating in and start to identify like, how am I showing up and am I showing up authentically? I think there's real power and healing that comes from it. But like anything that you have to disrupt and unlearn, those are deep grooves that we have to like course correct. And that's to me, the power of coaching is confronting those. Like, how do we start to build new grooves and start to channel, you know, energy in, in the water, if you will, to pathways that are kind of more efficient and, and healthier for us as individuals? And I think it's interesting there, this point that it's definitely a question of unlearning. It's definitely a question of all these things from a healing perspective. What makes it even more tricky is that in many ways, those things that we have to unlearn or things that we think of very often as being the reasons why we're successful, right? So we almost have to unarm ourselves with the only arm that we have, right? And so there's a whole level of fragility and vulnerability that comes with that because you basically have to be able to adopt new practices that you don't know. And so I think that's a really interesting point. This also reminds me, I took all the time as I went off to college, my uncle gave me, and I may have shared this before, um, this very helpful advice as a reminder as I went out into that great white world that I would never beat white people at being white. <laughs> like that is you, true. You're not going to win their game, <laughs> right? They're going to be better at being white than you could ever be, right? You can beat them at being black, right? And so basically, how do you redefine that game in a way that allows you to leverage your assets and allows you to leverage your community and those things that are important to you in that sense? I do just want to make a little bit of space because you you mentioned this idea of understanding the connections from a philanthropy perspective, from a broken systems perspective, from a capitalism perspective. And I just have to give you some space to talk a little bit about, you know, this idea of just reimagining capitalism in a way that's equity focused. And it's a bit of a jump, but for me, they're, they're, they're related. Because I think that there's something to be said about reimagining the world and the innovation that comes with that, but also this ability to kind of question what's the norm and see it differently. So I would love to just give you some if you have any thoughts, any any advice, please help. <laughs> well, I can also point you to some amazing authors who've spoken a lot to this, but um, I actually want to build on some of the asset pieces that we were talking about because I think it actually directly speaks to to the system that we're operating in. You know, one aspect that I'm you know continually thinking about is something like creativity. And I, I use that as an example because it's really hard to quantify. Like it's it's hard to quantify like the output, sometimes hard to quantify the input of it and, you know, certain spaces. And I, I think what's rich for many BIPOC leaders is that they do bring different assets if they viewed it as an asset and if other people viewed it as an asset. So, you know, I, I look at something like this medium that we're doing now, a podcast, right? Like storytelling is such a rich tool. And for many people, it comes from rich traditions and families where stories were the medium of, for connection. Like we, th- we think even about like these traditions of, of like the Bible and we think about them as written words, but they weren't. They actually were like 
stories that were were passed down that were really honored generation after generation. And for me, there's there's something powerful about exploring other mediums. And it, it speaks to this notion of how do we value things? And capitalism has distilled everything of value to, you know, a dollar amount or a currency for it. And against a certain timeline and time frame. I, I think as we look into this notion of ESG and how do we measure environment, social governance, all of these things, really big proponent of some of that work. But at the same time, some of this stuff isn't always quantifiable. And does that make it wrong if we can't quantify it? And I, I think the answer is no. And so if we can hold that space, how much more powerful would some of these notions of capitalism be if they didn't force us to distill every single aspect of our time, our you know, our resources to these singular metrics. So that's like from a really philosophical <laughs> standpoint. I also think the thing about capitalism that that's a little bit tricky for me is we don't often times think about where are the healthy bounds for any type of system. Like we don't think about the philosophical elements of, you know, power corrupts people. And so is it really that we want everyone to be Jeff Bezos? I don't think so. I hope not. And I, I really, for me, I've been really thinking about this notion of what is enough? Enough being both as a cap and as a floor, if you will. Like, so there, there's a a healthy amount of things and well-being that we need that is enough. And we also, there's a certain cap to that. Like we don't, do we need a bajillion dollars, every single one of us? No. And I don't think we ask ourselves that that question. We use market as a determination of our value. I think salary and recruiting is like a perfect example. How much would you want to make, Darren, for your next job? usually like a question that like people ask. And in some ways, like the question that I'm asking is, you know, what truly is enough if I, if I really were to think about it and it has no bearing on my actual intrinsic value as a human making $400,000 or $25,000 should not, you know, dictate my value as a human, but how much of us actually believe that to your point, you know, before, like it's, it's human fragility around, around some of those notions. And that I think is the problem with some of this capitalistic culture. Like we've reduced everything to these quantifiable metrics versus actually asking ourselves, like, what is our value? No. And I think that there's just, I mean, powerfully said, thank you. But at the same time as well, this, as you think about, you know, this reduction of everything to a dollar amount, when you reduce wealth to a dollar amount, I mean, how much wealth are you actually losing, right? And, and, and not paying attention to it, not appreciating and not elevating and not valuing, right? And who are the people who are quite wealthy in other ways that just aren't respected or uh, appreciated that you're leaving out of the narrative? Things that are necess- necessary, they're, they're, things are critical, right? That you just aren't valuing and that corrupt. And who determines who that determines, value, right? Who determines that value, right? Yeah, like why can't grant makers and funders be just as fine giving money for food. I think food in communities, such a, if you want people to show up to do a survey, 
have pretty to. straightforward. No, totally, totally. But then all of the money is like, oh no, we want survey tactics. We want these like very quantifiable measures, which are also important. Um, but also, food is kind of the the gather the center point for you know different communities. So just provide that. I'm down with that. Well, I, I do want us to to finish up the conversation. I, I would love to close it out. One of the questions I've been asking folks is, you know, I had a, a wise mentor, and I joke by wise mentor, I mean a wonderful therapist, many years ago, who shared that uh, sometimes hope comes from experience. And as you think of the world that we're in now, would love to hear some some words of hope uh, that you have for us, and and what experience gives you that hope. Such a good question. I am actually hopeful for the next generation. I know that that sounds cliche. I taught no, a class. No, not at all. I think it's incredibly optimistic to be thinking about the next generation already. So that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've screwed it up ourselves. So we need the new future generation to help us. But I teach a class called Building a Social Impact Consciousness at Georgetown University. And I'm just so struck by the power of teaching to dismantle some of the things that we're talking about and how do you use the classroom as a true laboratory to experiment with power and identity and how you show up and how you have tough conversations. And I'll give one vignette. We were doing a module around power, more so power and how it kind of has influenced philanthropy and you know all these different sectors. And the class, we, um, I've instituted feedback loops after every module. And so students will get up and, and share, like, here are some things that I'd like to change. And one of them said, you know, I really wish we had more conversation with each other. It's usually the traditional classroom format of like, you, Nate, as a professor speaking, we react as students, but I actually am really interested in hearing the perspectives of my other classmates. And this class was majority BIPOC, actually. And we changed the classroom setting. We literally got up, changed the chairs so it was a diamond instead of everyone facing front. And it was like so simple, but so powerful. And even being able to ask that question was huge. And I think it really changed the dynamic, A, that someone would be able to ask that question boldly, that there was space to hear it, that there was immediate change. And I, I think it built trust between me and students. And so I, I'm i just very hopeful for students that are able to ask these tough questions, that are able to actually do the tough, interrogative, introspective work that to me has to come before you do the external. Like, I don't really care about your intent. I care actually about how you're actually thinking about yourself situated in the action that you want to do. So it actually leads to better outcomes, not just good intent. It's wonderful closing and 100%, the kids are all right. And I'm reminded all the time that, you know, was joking with a friend, sad joke, that, you know, five years ago, our advice to young queer youth was it gets better. We literally told them just wait. <laughs> and they realized that it gets better right now because of the things that we do right now, right? So there's something to be said about the next generation and their tenacity hopefully will save us all. So thank you for your time, Nate. This has been wonderful. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I do. And I'll talk with you again soon. 
Thanks so much, Darren. I feel like I need something to eat now. I know, right? <laughs> okay, I'm starving. Thanks so much. Of course. Both my grandmothers were truly skilled in the kitchen, but I credit my grandma Lucinda for teaching me how to cook. My mother, her daughter, was the second youngest of six children and the only girl. My grandmother, being a bit of a feminist, did everything in her power to protect my mother from housework. Her entire life, my mother was spared the task of cooking and cleaning and instead encouraged to study, to read more, to focus on the books. So much so that as my grandmother lay on her deathbed when I was in middle school, my mother held her hand and joked, as Norlinians joke at death's door, but you can't die yet, Mama. You haven't taught me how to cook. My grandmother looked up, held my mother's hand tightly, and responded, well then, sounds like I've succeeded as a mother. For all she ever wanted was to raise a daughter who didn't know how to cook, a daughter for whom the kitchen offered no sense of comfort or belonging. But for me, her gay grandson, my grandmother's kitchen offered a place of refuge my mother was denied. I would sit and do my homework at the kitchen table as my grandma Cindy would stir the pots and cut the seasoning, all as she hummed, deep and off-key, some song that was familiar to her but unknown to me. She called me over to explain what when and when, how much and why, and most importantly, how to fix things when they didn't go as planned. For being a good cook was as much about knowing the right way as it was about knowing the way back to right when things went astray, as they often did. I remember the story she told as we waited for pots to boil, ovens to bake, and dishes to simmer. Some happy, some sad, but all punctuated with humor and offering lessons for a world I'd yet to enter. A world so different from her own, but one they were all preparing me to master. My grandmother died over 30 years ago, but I remember those cooking lessons like they were just yesterday. Important and replaceable lessons in leadership. Y'all, that's a wrap. And while the episode is finished, the work continues. Thank you for tuning in and listening generously to Dreaming in Color, a Bridge Band supported Studio Pod Media production. A special shout out to our show producer, the wonderful Teresa Buchanan, and our show coordinator, Nicole Genova. And a huge thank you to my ever brilliant Bridge Band production team and family Cora Daniels, Michael Borger, Christina Pistorius, and Britt Savage. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.